0: Let's pray. If you sang, and you said the words, we just sang some horrifying words. You can have it all, Lord. Everything in my world. What a horrifying song. I pray that your spirit and your word this morning will so rend our hearts that we mean every word of that. And that you'll use that to change your world through us. We love you, Lord. Amen. This morning, I'd like us to deal with a passage that has troubled believers and theologians and philosophers for a really long time. Uh, It's so compelling, it's had movies made about it. But the climactic scene is so troubling that even though it's in the Bible, you can't show it in church. Um, At age 75, 4,000 years ago, God called Abraham to leave his family and his home in Haran, his father Terah, to go to a faraway land called Canaan. And as God called him, he gave him an amazing promise. Look at this in Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of the great Abrahamic covenant I will make you a great nation. Now remember, the guy's 75, no kids. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Now this promise was totally absurd, not just because of his age, but because his wife Sarah had never been able to bear children. So the I will make you a great nation was an impossible promise. It was absurd. And yet, with nothing more than that promise from God, Abraham left everything, and after arriving in Canaan, he gave uh, God gave him a lot more details about this promise. And if you're uh, using your scripture electronically or or the real Bible, chapter 15, chapter 15, verse one, look at this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, "Do not fear, Abram." I am a shield to you, your, your reward will be very great. And Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give to me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Look at verse three. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, the one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, "The man, this man will not be your heir, but the one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able, count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, Abraham, we don't know for sure that whether Sarai heard this or not, but we know for sure Abraham would have run to his wife, Sarai, and, and she just didn't hear the same message. He didn't believe what God told Abraham. And so she came up with an alternate plan, kind of mind-blowing. Still can't figure this one, but here it is. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, again, this is kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? But that's, that's Sarai's plan. And you may know this led to disastrous and lifelong complications. Here's verse 15. So say, Hagar bore to Abram a son, and Abram called the name of the son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. That disaster goes on today. That disaster will be on the front page of the New York Times today. Um, So, despite Abraham and Sarai's unfaithfulness, 13 years later, God came to Abram again, and look in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, I mean, he's gonna have a baby? This gives me chest pain to think about. It was hard enough for me at 25, okay? So look at this. (laughs) <laughs> Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall... He puts... It amazing? He puts the, the Yah, the Ah, the breath of God, the Yahweh, right into the middle of his name. Abraham. Which also means, and this is typical in Hebrew, The next verse explains what that means in English. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And then drop down with me to verse 17. Verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? With Sarah, who's 90 years old, will she bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Interesting, huh? But He's already got a 13-year-old son. Uh, uh, And uh, verse 19, but God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And now, God pulled out the stops, and he made sure that the promise was clear. It's a really amazing part. He appears as three men and one Lord. Well, who's ever heard of that? This is, an, this is a mind-blowing text of Trinity that we can now see in retrospect. Three guys show up and say, hi, I'm God, okay? <laughs> this is really remarkable. Look what happens. Here comes the, the timeline in chapter 18. Look with me at verse 9 in chapter 18. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? They, remember, they, the three men. He said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, you, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent which was behind him. Now Abram and, and Sarah were old, advanced, in, and Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old? I mean, you can imagine the... Uh, hey. God, if this is really you, have you seen the old codger lately? This is not going to happen, right? Okay, Um, and and verse 12, and Sarah laughed to herself and said, after I become old, shall I make pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, indeed, you will bear a child when I am old? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? One of those questions that resound through the ages. Is there anything too difficult? difficult for the Lord? You walked in today with difficulties. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And now at age 100, the impossible happens. Chapter 21, look at verse 2. So, Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. So, what an amazing thing God does. The God of the impossible did the impossible. And look at what kind of person he did it for. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about the really pretty amazing and great things that Abraham did, but you know, he also did some really lousy things. First, there was, remember, there was the time when he allowed his wife to get taken into a king's harem. Yeah, now there's a valiant husband, right? That's right, because Sarah was so beautiful that when they went into Gerar, Abraham was afraid that King Abimelech would kill him because she was so beautiful, and so he talked her into saying that um, she's my sister, and, and yet she got put on a king's concubine list with Abraham's plan, what a schmuck. Okay, and then you ready, then there was the, um, even though God comes through with blessing him lavishly, the time when he's whining about who owned a water well. I mean, crazy, right? But the biggest failure is what he did to Hagar. See, when Sarah came in the fa- with the faceless plan to Abraham to have a child with her, Abraham should have said, what are you thinking? God made a promise to us, and our God is the God of the impossible. Now, now most of the time when this part of Abraham and Sarah's story is taught, we, we appropriately focus on their lack of trust and how easy it is for us to give the wrong answer. If, is there anything too difficult for God? No, we'll, we'll go our way and and help God out, or ignore God altogether. Um, But, rarely do we recognize what an incredibly treacherous act this was against a young maiden that they had responsibility for in their household. When they decided to add Hagar to Abraham's wife list, it's a fun list to be on, isn't it? So she would bear them a son, when they decided to turn her into a surrogate mother for their own purposes, This wasn't just an act of faithlessness against God. This was an act of treachery against a young woman. Unbelievable what was going on here. This is one of the saddest events in all of the Bible. In this act, Abraham and Sarah actually stole Hagar's opportunity to have a real husband. When Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, she was forever after considered Abraham's wife, even though Abraham was not being a husband to her. So her opportunity to have her own family was gone. But think about this. Despite this inconsistency in their faith, the up and down decision making, God delivered on his promise, brought the miracle child into their lives, and now we're in a position to understand the context of what happens next. It's one of the most famous and One of the most outrageous, confusing, horrifying passages in all of Scripture. Okay, you ready? Look at chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I can tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning Saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God told him. Three days journey, they're now at the top of Mount Moriah. Look at verse nine, next paragraph. Then they came to the place which God told him and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And now, God intervenes. This time as the angel of the Lord. You know who this is? Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy And do nothing to him, and now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh-Jireh, one of the great names of God. The Lord will provide As it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So, step back for a second. What was God thinking? In fact, in this moment, it's like, it occurs to me, Pastor Kurt's still in Iceland or somewhere, so I could preach easy. Why? What was I thinking? Why did I think Genesis, oh yeah, Genesis 22, there's an easy one to deal with. Um, In his faith walk, he had some highs and some lows. Some good days and some bad days. In fact, Abraham was acting a lot like a lot of American Christians. Inconsistent, lukewarm, You'd find him being the most amazing guy one day and then groveling in pathetic self-pity the next. So, what did God do? (laughs) He showed Abraham great love. Love? (laughs) Yes. In fact, what God did for Abraham was even more gracious, was even a greater gift than giving him a miracle child. And here it is, and this is your first notes, and this is important. Here's God's great gift to Abraham. God gave him a wake-up call. And while it was God's love, it felt like a ton of bricks had hit him, didn't it? Ever had God's love? (laughs) Me too. After all, this event seems so outrageous that there are theologians who call it divine child abuse. And because this passage has been so gigantically controversial in the history of biblical thought, let's run this context one more time, and let's add even more weight to how inexplicable God's actions seem to be. Why would God do this? After all, think about what Abraham had done as part of his faith in God. He'd given up a lot. And he had some really stellar moments, like the high point when he interceded for the sinners of Sodom. He called for grace for people who didn't deserve it because he knew it wasn't his actions that were righteous, it was his faith, it was believing in God and trusting in God alone that was his salvation, was his righteousness. And and it's impossible to overstate how incredible it was that he was willing to leave his country, his family, his inheritance, his land, and his ancestral home. In leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, he had left everything, for god so pay attention what's at the very heart of this event is so important i want you to write it in right out of the text from 20 uh, chapter 22 look at look at it take your son your only son whom you love think about it what god did here's your next blanks he had called abraham to give up that which he loved more than anything else in the world. And look what happened when Abraham gave back the blessing that God had given to him. Look from verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And now we're ready for how the classic theologians could say, could resolve what seems such a tough question. You ready? Write it in, a key concept from the classic theologians. This outrageous event shows God's goodness to Abraham. Say what? See, plenty of modern theologians have said, well, if God did this, he's actually an evil God. And and so, who, how could this event be an act of love? Well, let's start by looking at God's catastrophic intrusion into Abraham's life. After God blessed him with Isaac, Abraham thought he was in Fat City. But then something happened that's all too common among God's people. Abraham was lulled to sleep. Listen, to American church. Abraham was lulled to sleep by God's blessings. Blessings. Listen, most blessed nation in world history. He thought that all was well, but God knew that Isaac, as incredible of a blessing as he was, had actually put Abraham in great peril. Because remember where Abraham started was with great faith. Now he was at great risk. You ready? Here's here's your blanks. What was Abraham's peril? He was at great peril for replacing God with something he loved more. Oh, help us, Lord. Lord. And in this perilous state, God gave Abraham the gift of shaking up his world. God loved Abraham enough to test him. He woke him up. He shook him out of his blessed little world and made him think about eternal things, forever things. God gave him the gift of forcing him to think about what really mattered most. And remarkably, Abraham went all in. He got up the next morning early and off he went. It is an absolutely amazing step of trust. And now let me point out what many of us think about this passage. We spend a lot of time being distraught about how audacious this story and how horrible it is that God would do something like this. Or, or we go looking for the theologians I, I mentioned to tell us, well, God's not like that. So it must have been that Abraham just thought this was what God said to do right, to make ourselves feel much better about God. Um, But now we're finally ready to look and see two direct linkages between the outrageous Isaac story and Jesus to help us understand what God was doing. Linkage number one, you ready? Write it in. Isaac isn't really about Isaac. It's way bigger than that. See, you want to be mad at God about this story? Then how about being mad at the only one who actually died on the altar, the lamb who was actually slain, the innocent child who actually died, and now realize that Abraham didn't lose his son. God had already ensured that he would provide, and Abraham would never lose Isaac. But 2,000 years later, there was another father whose son begged him not to be slain, and whose father only son, said to him, Lord, father, please let this cup pass from me. But that father and that son actually followed through on this horrifying story. You want to be horrified about Genesis 22? Then be horrified about what happened on Golgotha, because that's where the real death of Isaac happened. So, It's only because they did this that the world has any hope. It's only because they did this that we have any forgiveness or any salvation. And so it's time for the redirection of our misplaced emotions about the event on Mount Moriah. Here's your blanks, ready? Before you argue with God about the Isaac story, let it sink in. Jesus is the real Isaac and no other lamb showed up to save him from being sacrificed. You want to be mad? <laughs> be mad at God for saying to his son, no, I, 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 you're going to take this cup if you're willing. And the son said, our salvation, three words, not my will. Save the whole world. And now linkage number two. So Isaac's not really about Isaac, he's really about Jesus. Linkage number two, ready? One of Jesus' teachings, here's your blanks, has the identical meaning of, the, of Abraham's story for everyone who claims to follow him. As we've seen, the Mount Moriah event isn't unique in Scripture because 2,000 years later, this is remarkable biblical geography, 2,000 years later, Mount Moriah had another name, Mount Calvary, same place, Why Abraham had to go three days to the mountain that the real Isaac would be slain on two millennia later. But the parallel between Isaac and Jesus didn't end with geography. It goes much deeper than that. And in fact, the other linkage comes in a shocking teaching from the Savior. Here's your blanks. One of Jesus' teachings is theologically identical to the Abraham-Isaac story. You've probably seen and heard lots about the nice teachings of Jesus. Well, you know, what? there's also, we could have about, you know, 40 pages of the tough teachings of Jesus. Here it is. We're going to see the meaning of Abraham raising the knife above Isaac has a perfect parallel in the Gospels. You ready? Here it is, Matthew 10:37. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And Luke, being you know the physician, so zero shepherd probably just like me. Luke being the physician, he just flat out says it shockingly. You ready? Now crowds, chapter fourteen of Luke. By the way, this was probably a crowd thinning sermon. Um, Now large crowds were going to him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, this is Jesus, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You wanna talk about Genesis 22 on steroids? There it is. Now this verse, of course, isn't a call to hate our family. Rather, It's another way to highlight how dramatic the contrast should be between our love for God and our love for everything else in our life. In other words, our love for God should be so great that all of our other loves appear as hatred in comparison to our love for the one God. See, Jesus was saying that in our lives, God must have no rival, no competitor, Not even our spouse, our children, our family should compete with our love for God. So the parallel with Genesis 22 is really clear. God calls everyone who would follow him to lay, you ready everybody, to lay our Isaacs on the altar. The thing that we could love more than anything else. The thing that drives us. The thing we think about. The thing that keeps us up at night. Maybe really good things. But the Isaac on the altar, it's a call to every one of us. So we're ready for application number one, ready? Anything, no matter how good, will ruin us, listen, will ruin us if it replaces God as our great desire. Why would God ask us to put even the wonderful things in our life, our relationships, our family, our blessings, that come from him, why would he ask us to put them on the altar? He gave them to us. Why would he do that? And the answer from the classic theologians is because he loves us so much, not because he 's mean and, and now keep tracking keep tracking this is brilliant classic orthodox theology, not doctored by the new try to have a nice Bible people, okay this is the real thing. Uh, here's the key concept. Write it in. When good things become ultimate things, they become our God. Let me ask you, what are you really chasing after? What do you really want? It can become your God like that. See, and because God knows this, he loves us enough to expose our counterfeit gods, to expose our idols, even when those gods are really good things, things that he gave us as goodness in our life. And so, while God loves to bless us, he also knows that in our fallen state, his blessings can ruin us. He's in such a quandary with us. He wants to give us everything. He wants to spoil us but he's a good enough father to realize they may fall in love with the world and that stuff and that person and lose all in the end. So, are you ready for this whopper of a surprise? God's greatest blessings easily become humanity's greatest idols. God's greatest blessings easily become humanity's greatest idols. See, it's not grungy stuff that becomes idols. It's great things that become idols. And this leads us to the great blessing paradox. Here it is. The more God blesses us with good things, it's crazy, look at this, the more likely we are to replace our love for him with our love for what he gives us. The paradox and this is why God called Abraham to put his son on the altar. And this is why Jesus declared, he who loves father or mother or daughter or son more than me is not worthy of me. Because he loves us so much and he doesn't want us to be ruined. So now that we've seen the knife held above Isaac and we've heard Jesus' declaration that can be described as nothing short of outrageous, we're ready for application number two. Here you go. Here's your blakes. The true call of Christ is to make all other loves insignificant in comparison to your love for him. Just so you know, that's the call, folks. That's the call. Now, I want us to remember that there were only two options in the Abraham-Isaac event, and neither of them would lead to Isaac's death. Okay, just to kind of Get through the philosophical issue here. Either Abraham would refuse to do what God asked him to do, or he would obey as he did, and God would provide another sacrifice. So in both scenarios, Isaac lived, okay? Isaac was never at risk for being killed. And what this means is that those who have tried to alter and change and reinterpret this story have actually missed the real point of the story, and here it is. It's a key concept, write it in. Ooh, this is a bummer. Genesis 22 isn't really about the death of Isaac. Either way, Isaac was gonna live. It wasn't really about Isaac, you ready? It's really about the death of Abraham. And you know whose names we can fill in? Ours. The putting that on the altar, what you love the most, isn't about that thing being gotten rid of, it came from God. It's his blessing, it's a good thing. It's about us dying to our will. See, it's about Abraham saying, as much as I want the promised child, Lord, I want you more. As much as I love my son, I love you more. And that's why Genesis 22 has a direct parallel to the call of Christ. You see, few believers in our culture ever come to grips with how drastic and far-reaching the call of Jesus is. So, given what we've learned from scripture, here's Jesus' radical call, you ready? Write it in. The cost of discipleship isn't just high, the cost of discipleship is everything. Now, giving up everything doesn't get us saved. Remember, this isn't the cost of salvation, Calvary, Paid all the price of salvation. But if you would come after him, if you want him to be your God and not all those other things that he's given to us, if you want him to be our God, the reality is the cost is everything. And let me interpret what I mean thereby. everything. It means everything Her, him, relationship, money, everything, everything. Possessions, it means everything. All right, contrary to what many preach who who, who preach cheap grace and easy Christianity, you ready what the real gospel begins with? Our death. You're saying, where did that come from? How about you might have this in your home? Believe and be baptized and you will be saved. That's right, believe and baptize, dead, buried, under the water, a death before the resurrection, to new life. Believe and be baptized, believe and die, and you will be saved. And this concept flows right out of the verses that follow Matthew 10:37. Let's look at that verse again. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he, look at this, who does not take his cross and follow me. Cross, it's an instrument of execution in Rome, right? His cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And Look at Mark's rendering of this from chapter eight, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospels will save it. See, contrary to much of American Christianity, the call of Christ is radical. Here it is, write it in. The true cost of discipleship, the spiritual resurrection that's our great hope, it's our salvation, it's our future, it's our eternity. The spiritual resurrection that's our great hope comes after our spiritual crucifixion. Some of you are saying, what? Wait a second, is that in the Bible? How about Paul's testimony? Galatians 2.20. For I am crucified with Christ, and it's now, I am, what's that? I am crucified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ, and it's now no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And what's amazing is, I've been crucified, but now the life I now live, so it's like Isaac. He's not really dead. (laughs) He goes on and lives, and fulfills God's promises in his life. The life I now live in the flesh I live by. Faith in the Son of God, who offered himself up for me. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing concept. And and look what happens in the incredible resurrection chapter. If you don't know 1 Corinthians 15, you should just learn it. It's so incredibly, brutally honest about if Christ hasn't been raised, we're all dead in our sins. If there's no resurrection, it's all over. Go be whatever you want to be. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus hasn't been raised, but... Paul was able to say, I saw him. I've been with him. I've seen the risen Christ. And he testifies. And then it gets cranking near the end of that. Look at that chapter. Look at that. Christ has been raised from the dead. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then comes the end. Okay, this is what's coming, folks. Lots of stuff going on in the world right now. We've read the last page. We know the end. We've read the end of the book. You ready, here it is. When the end comes and he hands over the kingdom to God the Father and he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, no more votes. No more, no more continuous four year election cycles, right? None of this stuff. He'll abolish all rule and authority for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, ready, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. What an awesome message from our mighty, majestic Christ in his supremacy, his power over death. But do you wanna know what Paul says as he nears the end of this incredible resurrection text? He's gone through this amazing declaration of the power over death, and this is gonna be the last slide you see this morning. You ready for Paul's testimony? Look at it. That's how the resurrection chapter ends. Holy cow. I was so unhappy the first time I found that. Couldn't it have been, you know, there's no, did you know there's no chapters, you know, in the, in the actual text, right, in the actual Greek text All there is is letter, 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 letter. There's not even spaces between the words because the parchments were way too valuable. There's no punctuation. It's like, why couldn't that be in chapter 16? So, amazingly enough, here's where we are. While many false teachers of our day call people to come to God for the blessings, the true call of Christ is a call to our death. It's a call to lay down all of my blessings, all of my Isaacs, and put them on the altar. But here's the tragedy. You can go to many churches for a lifetime and never be confronted with the in-your-face truth of Galatians 2 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Luke chapter 10 and Mark chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 22. Those can kind of get whited out. You can go to a lot of churches and be told that you can love both God and the things of this world. You can go to church and And you can be told basically here, as long as you tip your hat to Jesus as savior and you say you're sorry for your sins, the fact that you continue to love the things of this world isn't a problem. Because after all, you're saved. You can have bumper stickers that say stuff like, well, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. Yeah, that's right, yeah. What a great religion. I love to sin and God loves to forgive. We got a great thing going, don't we? That's real transformation, isn't it? The American gospel is often no more than that. You ready? But true disciples are those who love Jesus so much that all of their other loves aren't even worth mention when compared to their love for the Savior. See, are you ready for a a mind blower? When you get to that point, Isaac's on the altar, one true love, with a capital O, one true love, When you get there, you ready? Christianity is easier. Wait a second. Give up my stuff? And that makes it better? It makes it easier? Yeah, now follow through. When a person comes to this point, they love Jesus so much that they've nailed down the big questions. So when they hear God's word, no matter what the word means, they have to sacrifice the answers yes. No hesitation. Just simply, yes, Lord, Lord, what do you want? My, they're on the altar. What do you want for me? The big, big question is answered. Now Now think about how much easier it is than when every time you hear a sermon or read the Bible or do devotions or have a teacher that calls you to some challenging change in your life. Every time you're called to give something up that you want, think about how much easier it is if you don't have to have a tug of war going on in your heart because the answer is already in. Yes, Lord, it's on the altar. The answer is yes. I don't, Isaac's nothing compared to you, no matter how amazing Isaac is. John, come on up with the team. So listen, church. Freedom comes when Jesus overshadows all other loves in our life. Let me stop for just a second. We live in a day when I'll tell you how Americans describe, define freedom. Freedom means you get to do whatever you want to. Just follow your instincts. You get to do whatever you want to. That's freedom. You know what freedom is? You, you see, If freedom to you is you get to do whatever you want to and have the stuff that you want to and do whatever you want, if that's freedom to you, here's the key. Those things will utterly, completely rule your life. Their pursuit will make you give up much more important things. Happens all the time. You know what freedom is? The freedom is to when we come at those points where we know what we want to do and what we should do for whoever, for whatever. We are free to say, I choose what I should do. That's freedom, otherwise you're always chased to and fro by your desires. And you know what, a human ruled by desire, no matter how well they start, always end up ruined. You see, if I'm truly, actually, really, absolutely in love with Jesus, what am I gonna do when I'm tempted? I'm gonna gonna follow the one who I love with all my heart. And what am I gonna do when the crowd goes the wrong way? I'm gonna go the right way, even I have to go all alone. What am I gonna do when I hear the voice of the enemy? I'm gonna turn around and run the other direction. And what am I gonna do when the world offers me something to fall in love with? I'm gonna to say to the world, there's nothing you can offer me to replace my love for my God. Nothing. Do you know what that's called? Freedom. No more tug of war over every single thing. Oh, the Lord, you want that for me? Oh, oh what a big deal. Or congratulate, worse, congratulating ourselves for how much we do for God. Oh, Lord, how wonderful when the fight's over, the answer's in, and the struggle is finished. Isaac's on the altar. In a moment, we're gonna open these altars. But before we do, let me ask you, have you ever come to the point where you lifted the knife above all of your Isaacs? All those things that you love the most. Maybe you've heard God's high call but this morning the word is asking have you heard God's everything call not just the high call the everything call have you heard the full on all in radical call of Jesus or have you bought into the milk toast soft sell watered down lukewarm christianity of the day have you come to the point where you've really nailed down the big question Or are you reserving the right to have Jesus share his position in your life with the other loves that you have? Stand with me, congregation. This morning, Jesus is calling every one of us. Don't be deceived. His call is the most outrageous call you'll ever be challenged with. You know why? Because he's not looking for part of you. He's not looking for some of you. He's not looking for lots of you. He's not even looking for most of you. He's looking for one thing, all of you, everything. That's the only call Jesus has ever offered. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and come with me for the great adventure. So this morning, are you willing to raise the knife? Are you willing to... Lay your Isaacs on the altar. And this is really important. Some of you have tried to do that. You've tried to consecrate yourself into being holy. Okay, I'm gonna do this, and I'm never gonna do that, and I'm always gonna do this, and I'm gonna... And you know what? You can't do it. None of us can. Not any of us can be righteous in our own strength. We need a miracle, See, our only hope is to ask the Holy Spirit to transform us into the kind of person that we can never be unless Je- Jesus fills us completely with himself. And it is now no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Why? Because I died. I was crucified. I'm not trying to be holy or good anymore. The Pharisees were way holier than you, and they were utterly lost in their righteousness. We can't do it. So, you ready? You ready? He's not calling you to be good. What? He's calling you to be dead so that he can live in you. He's calling you to die to your will, your way, and walk in his will and his way. Here's the great news. When we're crucified with Christ for the first time ever, we finally come to know real freedom. Some of you have been struggling with the same sin for 25 years. On the altar. Dead. Dead to it. Baptized, raised to new life through his spirit. So, have you lifted the knife? And have you left room for only one true love? This morning... If you really want that kind of love for the Lord, and if you really want that kind of freedom, come as we sing. Just come.